welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is the Potomac School head baseball coach and Mizuno Outlaws founder, Eric Crozier. Eric grew up in Columbus, Ohio and played collegiately at Norfolk State. He was drafted in 2000 by the Cleveland Indians and had an 11-year pro career, making his major league debut with the Toronto Blue Jays in 2004. He's one of our unique coaches that coaches at the high school level, but also runs a facility and coaches travel baseball. This is a deep dive into differences in playing and coaching, and also differences in coaching high school, training players in a facility, and travel ball. The Mizuno Outlaws mission statement is develop, compete, commit. So we discuss how to develop players and also play winning baseball. Eric gave a great talk on hitting for the virtual convention in January, so we also discussed things that helped him as a hitter, and now are helping him coach hitters. Let's welcome Eric Crozier to the podcast. Here with Eric Crozier, head coach at the Potomac School, runs uh, Mizuno Outlaws in Northern Virginia, played at Norfolk State, drafted by the Indians in 2000, and a former big leaguer with a couple different organizations. So, Eric, thanks for jumping on with me. Oh, man, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, shout out to Rob Hani. He introduced you and I in Nashville convention. So, huge shout out to, to Rob for that. Yeah, Rob was great, man. Um, and he continues to deliver, man. Anytime you ask to ask him for a favor or whatnot, he, he's never afraid to uh, lend a helping hand. Hey, can you talk about your path a little bit in the game for anybody that doesn't know who you are? Uh, man, from Columbus, Ohio. I went to Independence High School in Columbus um, and then ventured out to Virginia. Um, you know, received a, a full ride to go play at Norfolk State. Uh, and what I was told that that wasn't normal. Uh, so because of baseball and academics, ended up in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, best decision I ever made because it really helped me grow up. I uh, had to get away from being under mom's wing and being a mama's boy and kind of grow up. And, and Virginia was the perfect place for it. I played four years for Coach Marty L. Miller. I uh, was a great mentor uh, still to this day. And then was fortunate enough to, to move on. I was a 40th round pick out of Norfolk State. I uh, felt like I should have been drafted or there. And once I got into the Indian system, you know, really just tried to be the hardest worker. Um, you know, there's a lot of parts 
and my and my hitting style that was raw and, and needed to you know be fine tuned and you know was awesome. I had some very influential voices along the way. Uh, Lou Fraser being the biggest and. Next thing I know, I just kept moving up level after level. I uh, was fortunate to be a Carolina League All-Star in 2002 and actually won MVP of the game uh, with Rocco Baldelli. And then from there, Double A had a good year in Double A. Uh, then, you know, the Indians was such a competitive organization that I actually had to uh, go back to Double A after, you know, I moved up. I played half a season high A and then went straight to Double A and finished the year pretty good, but they wanted me to, you know, prove it for an entire year. Uh, so I went there with the task of becoming a power hitter um, because through my life, I was a line drive guy, you know, really focused on hitting for high average. Uh, but they had Jim Tomey, you know, so they said, well, if you're going to play in the big leagues here, then you got to hit for power. So I think, you know, that was my mindset going into that year and kind of got out of my approach, just really – a free swinger. And while the home runs came, the average did not, you know, so my average dipped almost 60, 70 points from where it was the previous year from just, you know, coming out of my shoes, so to speak. So went back to the drawing boards that off season and, and figured out how I can become both. Um, went into AAA that year in uh, 2004 and had a really good year, hit for high average and hit for power and then was traded. So, hey Eric, what age were like, hey what age were you when when that happened when when you started to hit for power and average? What, how old were you? Uh, twenty three. Yep, and, and, and that's about old. right too. Yeah, what what conversations did they have with you? So so they tell you to hit for more power than the the average dip. Did they talk to you about maybe going back to what you were doing before? You know, wasn't really a, a lot of conversation about going back. It was more along the lines of, okay, how are we going to figure this out, you know, to where we can get what we want so that you can get where you want. And for me, it was really just kind of backing the ball up again. You know, I've always been a guy that's had really good power to left center. So I really had to get back into my approach of, of backing things up a little bit. And once I did that, now I was starting to focus on hitting for power to center field. And when you're in center field, you can't go wrong. Uh, so in, in that approach, now I started to see my average come back because I had a two-strike approach again. I was hitting the ball the other way. And then when I got my pitch, you know, I was still able to drive it out of the yard. So it was really just kind of slowing things down a little bit. I actually ran into a little bit of a back injury while trying to hit for power because, again, my approach was just kind of coming out of my shoes. Um, but once that kind of settled everything down, and got back in the middle of the field, uh, man, the power was there and so was the average. And I was excited because, you know, anytime that you feel like you're putting something together, you have a plan. You know, my, my plan is a daily regimen of a certain amount of T-reps going this way, doing that. And all of it just seemed to just really work. And I was in a really good place. Carlos Garcia was my hitting coach. And he was just one guy that said, hey, man, just keep it simple. You know, and the old cliche, see ball, hit ball, it's so easy to be said. But that's all it really turned out to be was just really seeing it, allowing it to get to me, and just being aggressive through it. You talked about Lou Frazier, and you mentioned his name multiple times. I mean, what did he teach you that, that felt like impacted you so much? Oh, man. Lou taught me a toe tap. 
<laughs> and, you know, the toe tap was great for myself because I was so stiff and so rigid. And, you know, I was just a guy that kind of gripped it and ripped it, you know. But when Lou was like, hey, man, they said if you don't loosen up, you're probably going to get released. So I was like, okay, what do I have to do? <laughs> you know, the time to try to loosen up. And when he gave me the toe tap, now my mind always had something to do, you know, and it was like my moves had to be made. And then we also focused on my, my front hip going back because I was a bit of a spinner. Um, so, you know, there'd be some balls that I'd hit really well, but they'd have top spin and they would die at the warning track. But man, when we learned the toe tap and my front hip started going back, I mean, hitting, hitting the ball out of the yard was easy, literally. Um, and it was effortless. So he was so influential in just teaching me a technique that I could just kind of take and run with. Yeah, that that's the neat thing, you know, with players as a coach. And you see players when they finally figure out how to hit the ball hard with less effort. It's a, it's a beautiful thing mm -hmm. when that light goes on for guys. It was. And I tell you what, the day that it really showed was it was a windy day. We were in Wilmington, Wilmington, North Carolina. And we were playing, and it was, we were playing the Dodgers. And I remember the wind was coming in hard, and balls were just dying. And I literally hit this ball that went out on the line over the scoreboard. And I think everybody there was like, wow, did this kid just do that? And Lou was like, man, you're hitting balls that cut through wind. And I think that was the moment that I kind of realized what we had been working on made me feel different. You know, and, and we'll dive back in a little bit as we get going here. Can you talk about the transition then from playing to coaching and, and how that was for you? It was tough. It was tough. I never in a million years thought I would ever coach. Um, Steven Gussler, uh, rest in peace, was my mentor. He was he coached me through American Legion. I mean, he, he basically was my older brother. And he told me I would coach one day. And I said, not seeing what you go through with us, there's no way. I'm going to be on the field, but he was right. And the big transition was wanting it more than the kids that I was coaching. And that to me was something that it took me a while to adjust, had to change my style several times. I've never really been a guy who yells and screams or whatnot. It's just not my personality, but you know, I had to understand something that he taught me long ago and was like, Eric, these kids aren't you. So when you realize that you can't expect people to do or be the way you would, then you really start adjusting your style and you start listening. Um, these new generation of kids, man, you have to encourage them more than the old school guys used to, you know, and that's just the reality of it. And it's not so much coddling, it's just reassuring that you got their back. And I think that's what they need the most. Um, so that was the biggest adjustment for me was just realizing that don't expect what you would expect out of yourself. You know, I, I think that's the the key now um, with, with this generation. You're, you're doing it together. Um, you know, it's not that old military style. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. you are doing it together with, with the players. Um, and so it is not that you're teammates, but it, it seems like it's a little bit more like you are teammates now, uh, as opposed to, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. And a lot of that, I mean, I have to credit, you know, Lou taught me some of that as well, man. He was kind of like a player's coach. 
And I had him and Brad Commons that were both players coaches. Marty Brown, my AAA guy, was the players coach. And when you have players coaches, those are guys that you can approach, you can talk to. Um, you know, sometimes I might be a hard guy to read because I don't really say a whole lot. So I understand that, you know, so that when I get a kid that's like that, my patients are, you know, they're easy. Like, hey, man, this is a guy who may be just a little bit more internal. You just have to be a little bit patient with them. But I think it's so important to have a coach-player relationship where your guys feel comfortable with you. And, and, you know, there might be some joking around, but they know where the line draws, and you can let that be known up front. But if players aren't relaxed around you, there's no way you're going to get everything you need to get out of them. Yeah, it's tough. There's that balance of, um, you know, allowing them to be comfortable, but making sure that they're they're staying locked into what they're doing as well. And so what are those conversations that you're having with them? Like, hey, you know, I'm going to kind of let you relax, but there's a time to, to get after it and, and get our work in. What are the conversations you're having with them on that? You know, I, I think it really is, you know, the expectation of, okay, you give guys, I call it the, the silly period, the relaxed period where they have maybe five minutes, 10 minutes to kind of get their day out, man. Cause these guys are, you know, especially the times we're in right now, their life's not normal. You know, things that they've done in the past, it's just not normal. So you have to give them a chance to kind of just say, get their talking out, laughing with their buddies or whatever it is. But I say, Hey guys, at three Oh five, we're locking in we're getting done some things that we really need to fix and improve on today. And I think because you give them that time for them to do that, it makes it easy for you to then say, Hey, all right, now we're ready to lock in. And you're one of our special guys. You coach a high school team, but then you also work and run a facility. Can you talk a little bit about the differences of when you're working one-on-one in the training facility, as opposed to working with your team in the high school setting? Oh, man. Um, when you're working one-on-one, man, you just have so much time to really, like, dive in to the finest of details that you want to. Um, there's no, like, clock that you're watching or whatnot. But when you have a group of guys, you know, you then maybe have to take one or two focuses into that day because you want to bring it to a group setting. You can't cookie-cut anybody. So maybe we say today we're focused on getting to a good balanced position Today, we're focusing on our front hip and front shoulder. So when you have the group training model, it's just more of a one or two thing focus opposed to when you're in a session, you can kind of get really deep and, and intimate and spend so much time on, on one thing. You know, you talk about balance, front shoulder, hip. What are some of the the drills that you're using with those guys? And and for anybody that hasn't seen Eric's virtual um presentation yet go back and watch and um for for new members or returning members that didn't buy the virtual clinic uh that'll release on may 24th so it's a good time to to jump on it but yeah talk a little bit about balance then that front shoulder and that front hip man so important um the the front hip and front shoulder is a lot of my focus in my sessions because i feel like so many of our our young hitters today are, are backside dominant, maybe from concepts that they've learned from group settings, right? Again, because if you didn't have a chance to really be intimate in the, in the setting with somebody, you might have been taught from a group standpoint. And the backside dominant, so therefore 
their lead hand is always going out. So they're leading themselves out and around balls opposed to pulling through them. So we do a lot of that front shoulder, front hip work just so we can get the back going in the correct direction. Um, this move eliminates leaks. Uh, it eliminates spins. And it really helps guys understand what it feels like to really whip the bat through the zone. And it's, it's so rewarding. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, I was doing, you know, this front hip, front shoulder drill with one of our power hitters. And he was a guy that hit the ball hard, but he wasn't really able to get it in the air. You know, so I'm like, man, you have everything you need. He had the spin, so he was top spinning. He was kind of casting around it. But there was one day he was kind of put a little, putting a little bit more air in his foot to get him a better weight transfer. He got to a center. And I tell you, when he pulled that bat through the zone, he hit like three balls, like way over the trees. And the look on his face was like, wow, I just did that. And I just looked at him. I said, man, that's been in you for a long time. You know, so it's just, it didn't shock me. It was just, how can we work together to get it out of you? And, you know, it's a hard concept to buy into sometimes because it sounds different than something that you've been told your whole life. So again, that's where the trust comes in. And that's where the one-on-one conversation was like, look, man, I would never do anything to hurt your swing. I'm only here to help you. And and once guys really genuinely feel that, I think they kind of let the guard down just a little bit. You know, I was different. I was a player that did everything my coach said. That's probably why I changed my swing 90 times (laughs) because I wanted to, to satisfy everybody. But, you know, it's just it's awesome to have that trust and to work on that. You see it a lot now with guys spinning. Do you think that's a product of of not getting to a good launch position and and maybe focusing on staying back? I think you hear that term all the time now, stay back, stay back, stay back. Well, what happens is they stay back too much and there's too much on that back leg. Do you feel like that's a byproduct of all that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, one thing I always try to translate to my players is, look, you're going to transfer your weight sooner or later. It's going to happen. You know, so if you don't get to center on time, then you're going to get to center as you're trying to swing the bat. And that's when the ball is going to really get up on you because you're moving forward when you should be stationary and ready to go. And if you sit back, I mean, if you get to center on time, then your body has satisfied all of its moves and you're ready to hit, you know, and that's the thing, guys who sit on that back leg, you see it coming. You see it coming the minute they make their next move, they either stand up because their back foot pushes them up opposed to being in a position to where it's ready to rotate. I think the eye-opening thing for guys is when we would show the front view and also the side view at the same time and then show big leaguers because from the pitcher's view, it looks like the head's not moving a lot through the load, but then you turn it to the Mm -hmm. side piece and and there's so much movement – uh, on the front end before they get to launch position. And then that allows them to be stationary with their head in launch by getting to a good position. But there's a lot of freedom and movement before they get to that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they don't realize it, you know, until video is video doesn't lie. The camera doesn't lie. The mirror doesn't lie. You know, it shows everything right there. And they're, they're even amazed. You know, you try to translate, look, when you started your you started your move, your head was on this plane, so this is where you saw the ball. But then when you go to swing, your head's now on this plane, so you're seeing the ball in a totally different space. So how do you expect to be consistent if you're changing your eye levels? 
Hey, your mission statement for the Outlaws is develop, compete, commit. Uh, with summer ball, how do you balance playing to win, developing, and showcasing players to get to the next level? Oh, man. That's the question that we ask ourselves every year. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh... – <laughs> You know, you know, one thing is, you know, you realize that each kid deserves his opportunity to showcase what he can do. And, you know, it's your job as a, a coach and manager to find those spots to put him in to be successful. Now, we all know that there's going to come a moment in time, say, you, you know, you're in the playoff and you have to go with your, your best guys and you have to do that. And I think what happens is if you communicate that, to your players and you communicate that everybody gets their shot and you show them that they get their shot. I don't think you have any problems right there. The biggest problem that you always have is when everybody feels they're a shortstop, you know, and, and the guy who's playing shortstop is a legitimate shortstop. So then you have to balance the parents with that as well. And again, that's another time when you have those hard conversations that, you know, everybody doesn't always accept. And I get that, you know, but I feel like a parent has a right to, to speak their mind to a certain extent because they're paying money to play. And, and it's your job if you are taking on this role to then help get their child in the best spot. So I just think it just comes down to a lot of communication. And, you know, some of that communication isn't an easy conversation at all. Uh, and I won't pretend that it is, but it's still ones that you have to have. Well, developing is part of winning, correct? It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, you don't want to develop losers. <laughs> if you develop a loser, <laughs> you develop a loser that goes into somebody's uh, collegiate program, they can tear that thing apart. And then that, you know, that coach will never deal with you again. Um, so winning is definitely a, a huge part of development. And it's winning the right way. You know, we're not going to win in a way that's undermining or, or disrespecting the game. Um, and, Really, when you get in the showcases, getting these guys to play the game the right way. And one message that I always try to give my players is make people want to stop and watch your game. You know, what is it about this team that people want to gravitate to the field? You know, you go to all these multiplexes and you see all these games, but you'll see those teams that attract crowds. And that's the team that you want to be. And those are guys that not only have talent, but they just play the game the right way. You know, you're, you're hitting development calendar. How are you laying that out for the players that come into the facility with them? You know, right now, uh, seeing that we're in season, it's really quality reps. You know, we discuss um, – I have all my guys send me video from their games uh, so that I can see. You know, it's one thing to do it in a cage. It's another thing to do it in a game. So always look at the game videos to see, you know, maybe what they might be struggling with. We talk about what they might be struggling with. So a lot of our in-season focus is targeted on specific things. Uh, in the off-season, you know, late fall into the winter, that's when we make changes. You know, we make changes, we make adjustments to, to try to get more out of your swing, um, to get you ready for the next level. And that's when you bring in the, the bands, the weighted bats, techniques, the, the weighted balls, um, different movement patterns just to continue to strengthen your swing. So it's like mainly a calendar of off-season changes, in-season maintenance. Love it. Hey, are you using any different drills now than what you used as a player? Oh, my goodness, yes. 
Uh, so I always tell uh, kid Lou all the time because we still talk hitting. He has an academy in Arizona, and um, we still talk hitting. I says, man, I'm you on steroids now, man, <laughs> because I have my own mind, and I can just take all this stuff that you know you gave me back in the day and, and the drills that I picked up from organizations to where now where I work with the guy, you know, when you develop an eye for development, an eye for where you want to see this player get into you bring in some crazy things just to really manipulate the body. Um, and, and right now, one that I'm really on is uh, really elevating the front foot. And, and I get their front foot way off the ground. And it's really to make guys stay stay back, technically. But not only are they staying back, but now, you know, when they go to swing, they can really start to feel that pull from their front side. You know, because when you eliminate any chance of leak, it's just going to improve your front side. So, so, so um, kind so of, of break that crazy, down a little bit. Stuff. When you when you talk about elevated front foot, and, and I've seen it, so just mm-hmm. so somebody that's maybe listening in that maybe isn't conceptualizing it, are they hitting then yep. with their front foot elevated or are they striding off of it? Their front foot stays elevated yep. the whole time okay. Perfect. in this particular drill. And, you know, I've seen it done with the uh, anaerobic boxes. I've seen it done with um, – two by fours. There's so many different things that you can use to elevate, but I've gone extreme and I have like a box that's about, I couldn't even give you maybe 12, 10 inches off the ground. So, I mean, it's, it's up there and it it really, it's really fun to watch, you know, then figure out what that connection is supposed to look like through the discomfort and things. Right. And, you know, you always get into those guys, you know, and, and it's the hardest thing is when, something's really difficult for somebody, you know, that look of defeat on the hitter's face. And you, you know, you talk to him like, look, man, there's no sad faces in here. Cause we're working, you know, you're not being judged off anything. We're, we're working to improve something in here. So when you have that mindset, and I think I said it in my presentation is falling in love with the process of learning your swing. When you fall in love with that, then you stay away from those days where you you have the pity party in the cage. And we've all been there. You know, we want to be flawless. And, you know, baseball, unfortunately, is just not a flawless sport. We used to use the BP platform um, just for, for different elevations. You know, coaches reach out all the time like, okay, I've got a guy who's too uphill I'm like, hey, just put him on the slope. Sometimes that would fix the setup for guys. If we had a guy that in his setup was maybe too uphill with his front shoulder to start, that we would force yeah. them by by doing the incline up. Uh, and then when they got on mm-hmm. flat ground, that seemed to kind of correct it for them. Um, you know, But yeah. I, I do like tinkering around with the elevation piece because I think it allows guys to kind of feel what's going to be best for them when they get on flat ground. What about you know, what about similarities? I mean, are, are you doing anything the same? I mean, there's some. Are there any tried and true ones that you're still holding on to from when you were playing? Oh yeah, man. Uh, the walkthrough is one that I absolutely love, and I remember the uh, video Kevin Long did with A Rod. Oh yeah, and literally, literally, they were having a conversation the whole time A Rod was going through the drill and doing it. And that's one thing that I've I've taken and always said to my guys, like, he's in such a relaxed state right now. He's executing all of his moves, but he's having a conversation. So that shows that this is becoming something that feels very natural and and things. And, 
that's the thing, you know, you want all your drills to create that, that natural move because that's the move that players are going to be able to hold on to. Um, balance and stride uh, is another one, you know, being able to, to hold certain positions and then get to your center. Um, most kids' legs, they find out their legs aren't as strong as they think they are. <laughs> when you when you turn, you talk about in terms of getting into a strong hitting position. So balance and stride and walkthrough are ones that I, I keep forever, as well as rapid fire, man. I mean, yep. when you learn how to, you know, pull the bat through the zone repeatedly. Uh, my, my message to my guys is if you can do that five times, what's so hard about doing it once? And it also teaches them to keep their, it teaches them to keep their head stationary through their swing too. I mean, that's what I loved about it. And people are like, well, you shouldn't be doing, I'm like, Hey, they are going to fall all over the place if they don't keep their head under control doing this. I just thought it was a great way to teach them why their head needed to stay stationary through their swing. Exactly. I mean, you're so true with that. And the biggest thing you have to watch out for guys is, you know, they try to cast to be quick. And so I'm like, no, that's not what we're working on here. We're trying to get through so that we're creating backspin, even through the drill of being rapid. So um, both of those points are so so valid in that drill. You talked about Kevin Long's video, and I, I mean, there was all that was one of the ones that we held on to when it came out. John Cohen, who's the AD at Mississippi State, he was the head coach at Kentucky for a long time. He had a like a 40 drill sequence video that was great. But the other one was Dave Hudgens. Right. Uh, hitting for excellence. It was like a nine DVD series. We used Dave Hudgens mm. hitting for excellence on a lot of different stuff. I just thought he broke the swing down, but then he he gave some really actionable drills in that that video series. That's awesome. That's awesome. That might be one I have to pick up to see if I, I don't even know if you can find right it. There. I think it's a deep dive on Amazon <laughs> that that maybe somebody's selling yeah. that. Um, that series, but uh, it's just some nice reminders, but kept things simple and um, thought it was a lot of actionable stuff that could help guys. Hey, what, what's the difference with working with a youth kid that comes into the facility and then maybe working with an older kid? Oh, man, just patience. You know, I think, um, you know, younger kids are, are more of a sponge. You know, you, you can, you can kind of throw anything at them and it, it might seem tough in the beginning, but they're in that stage where their mind is developing at a rapid rate. So they're getting new stuff on a daily basis. So I think it's so much easier to get those guys to do what you want to do opposed to an older guy, excuse me, who might have so many influences on him at that time that you have to break through all those barriers to get to the place where you can even begin to start. Right. So with the younger guy, I think you can move a little bit faster. Yeah, the older guy is going to be experienced. He might catch on to something, you know, quickly, but you still have to break through that barrier of stuff, I call it, uh, that they've been dealing with their whole life. So, man, those younger guys are sponges, man. I love hey, it. Hey, where's the first place? You know where's the first place you start with a young kid? You know, say he comes to you the first time. What, what's the first thing you're starting with them, uh, with the youngsters? Oh, man, swing path. Swing path is where we started. Um, so I take them off their feet just so that we can learn swing path. Uh, because if we can get that back going in the right direction, uh, it's going to make it easier for us to work on the lower half. I think sometimes if you go lower half, kids at a young age, are they don't feel like they're strong enough to do certain things. So 
Therefore, when they don't feel like they're strong enough, they're always going to swing with big muscles and they're going to have those, those swings that just are long. And you're like, okay, let's, let's get you off your feet, man. And, and let's just get the swing path going. And with younger guys, I, I bring out wiffle ball bats. Yeah. It's I love so it. funny because love it. I recommend that all the time. Wiffle ball bats. They're amazing because our swings were perfect as kids because all we focused in wiffle ball was whip the bat through the zone. But when we start getting loaded bats, whether they be in loaded, you know, top heavy, no balance, or the hands has load in it, that's when the swing seems to change because sometimes these loads are too much for their bodies. So they just, they do things with the bigger muscles and they lose sight of what the real goal is. And that's whip. Uh, so the wiffle ball bat is amazing. Some of my weaker guys or guys that are still trying to find their power, man, we stay in that wiffle ball phase for at least 15 minutes in every session. Love it. Love it. You know, you, you hit on the toe tap, but talk a little bit about maybe the differences between styles and then hitting fundamentals. Oh, man, styles. Well, we all want to be like what we watch on TV, man, uh, and those guys are great. And they've been influential for me my entire life. Um, you know, when I see a guy who, who might have, you know, he's got good hands, but he has a terrible stride, you know, that, that might be a guy that you can do some, some leg kick ventures with because he kind of has the start of what he needs to have a, a good leg kick swing. You know, he's got the whip in his hands, but maybe he's just not generating enough with his lower half. So that's when we throw the look the leg kick in there if i have a guy that is afraid uh to leave the ground you know i said that's okay uh, and now we're just going to be a, a back and step guy you know we're going to keep it simple simple like joe mauer joe mauer's swing is is very simple and he's really good was really good at what he did man uh he's fun to watch uh, but if you're watching the slow motion not a whole lot of movement right there um don't see too many Moises Salou guys, the no stride uh, anymore, um, just kind of maybe the twitch of the hands. But, you know, stiff guys. Um, Bichette, I, I mean, you see some guys with two strikes now still still use it. Bichette uses it with, with two strikes. Oh, Soto, man. <laughs> man, he's fun to watch when he has two strikes, you know. And, you know, we've had this argument who was better between him and Bryce when they're here, and I hate saying it because I'm a huge Bryce Harper fan just then. I love the way he cracked into the bigs, um, but Soto is special. You know, when he's he's got no stride, opposite field, pop. <laughs> you know, and that's just not normal in a lot of cases. So, um, Well, they, they showed something the other day with Harper. Um, same at bat, no strikes at a, a leg <laughs> kick. Uh, one strike had a toe tap, and then two strikes he had a no stride. So just thought yeah. it was phenomenal. Yeah. Here's a big leaguer that, that that has been a successful big leaguer for a long time that's still trying to tinker around with some different styles to try to help him be successful count to count. And you do that, you know, and it's so crazy. That was an adjustment that I made, you know, because being a toe-tap guy, when you face guys out of the stretch and they know you're a toe-tapper, what's their number one goal? I'm going to jack up his time. Yes. So yep. I'm going to do holds. I'm going to do slide steps, everything. So when I got the two strikes, rather than deal with all that, I just spread out and go no stride so that I know I know my hands are good enough to drive the ball that way. Um, and when that adjustment was made, it was like, wow, 
you know, I felt like you, you go through phases in your life when you are, you feel like you're on fire, you're on everything. And then you go through those phases where you feel like nothing works. <laughs> you know, the field looks like you're hitting in a 600 foot sandbox. Um, so, you know, it's amazing mentally, you know, where baseball can take you, but that, that approach of knowing how to change some things up and still allow yourself to be successful. I think that's something that comes once you learn your swing. Well, I thought Bonds was probably the best guy we had that could still stay with his toe tab, but with two strikes would just start back real early and then just wait until yeah. he saw the ball out of the hand to stride. But we haven't, we haven't had too many guys that have been able to kind of mess with their own timing to match up to what the pitcher was trying to do to them. I thought Bonds was the one guy that yeah. kind of stayed with that style every count, but he would mess with his own timing just to make sure he was getting started soon enough with two strikes. Yeah, he, he his toe tap was fun to watch. Um, I studied Rafael Palmero inside and out. Um, that was the guy who I based my toe tap off of. You know, Sammy Sosa and Henry Rodriguez, they had the slower one where you kind of move, you know, from wide to short. And then, you know, you go back out. It was, you know, it was a little bit different. You know, Rafael was more, it had more rhythm to it. It was like tap, tap, you know, and that's, that's the one that I like, you know, because I felt like, it was almost like you were dancing in the box. I remember watching Miguel Tejada when we played against the Orioles, and this dude looked like he was dancing yes. in the batter's box. And it was amazing to see, like, how much rhythm he had when he hit. And, and Rafael was the same, you know. So, you know, when you have just guys that you can just watch and, and learn from and then try to understand, you know, being stiff, you don't have to be that way. Or, you know, let's let's go ahead and get some movement in here. And there was also a time where I had too much movement. And somebody was like, okay, you're doing too much now, buddy. You got to kind of slow things down. So uh, it's it's amazing, you know, just the levels we go through as hitters and the changes that we make in our swings. What are some other changes that you had to make as you went up, you know, from high school to college to pro? You talked about adding a toe tap in. What are some other things? Because I would tell guys – this is almost like being in the classroom, you know, as you graduate levels of school, your work volume is going to have to go up in order to be great in the classroom. Just like on the field, you're going to have your volume of work away from it's going to have to go up as well. What are some other adjustments you had to make as you were going up levels? The biggest thing was learning how to move early and move early the right way. Um, not enough people, you know, especially at the, the younger ages as you watch, know how to get ready to hit. They feel like getting ready to hit is just getting your foot down. And it's so much more than that. I'm actually working on something right now, and hopefully we can talk about that at a, another conversation. But it's something to help hitters understand when and how to get ready. Love um, it. I actually learned a, I learned a technique of creeping once I got into pro ball, cause I had this toe tap and especially with two strikes, if I wanted to make sure that I was on time or if it's a guy that was 95 to 97, I knew I had to move earlier just to make sure my moves were done on time. So it was almost like just feeling myself kind of free float back, you know, but I wasn't letting my weight get over my knee or anything. Everything was staying right where it was supposed to, but I was moving. And then when I got to my stride, it was just so much easier to hit. And, you know, hitters are overwhelmed right now because they don't understand what early move is. And that's one of the main focuses in my high school hitting program is, you know, we do um, 
we do batting practice, you know, right now where we put a giant screen in the middle of the plate. So we have two hitters on both sides. So we, you know, we got to get as many reps as we can in two hours, Coach B. So um, we got two guys hitting at the same time. One guy's hitting off the spin ball machine. Another guy's hitting off me. And the spin ball machine is perfect because it's really helping our guys understand, get ready, get ready, get ready. You know, they have the cue of when the arm goes up, boom, that's when they need to be moving and getting themselves ready to hit. So that's the biggest thing for my hitters. And I always tell my guys, there's no reason to be late, especially when you're facing somebody out of the windup. Get yourself moving so that you can execute your moves. Did your routine change then as you got went from college to pro ball? Did your routine change much as a player? It did. It did. It changed a whole lot. Um, I'm very mental, you know, so I, I was probably a bit of an overkill. Um, but, you know, my my routine was taking notes of every at bat, you know, and I would review those notes after the game. Um, write down the pitchers that I faced, what they were trying to do to me, what I did during the game, and kind of developing like a hitter's log uh, because you play, you see so many pitchers. I did multiple too. Times. I used a, I used a hitting log <laughs> also. It, it's, it was so helpful, man. And then I was the one thing that I was as a professional that I was never as a youngster was I was very honest with myself. If I sucked that day, I told myself I sucked and, and why I felt like I did. So that when I went into the, the the stadium the next day, my work was fix this, feel like this, you know. And I think sometimes we only judge ourselves off of hits and non-hits. And I think if you want to be great at something, it's so much deeper than that, you know, because you can do a lot of things absolutely correct and still have nothing to show for it. So, you know, the biggest thing is give yourself a pat on the back when you do this of what you tried to set out to do, if you wanted to work counts that day, I was a big work count guy. Um, the Indians, we did the money ball, you know, system, um, you know, throughout my last couple of years there. And there was a game where I saw 28 pitches and I had four quality at bats. I think I only had two hits in that game, but the mission, the goal was accomplished. Right. So I just think, you know, as you grow, you have a regimen, you're honest with yourself, and you don't get away from that, you know, whether it's going good or whether it's going bad. And if it's going really bad, then you might need to look at what you can make some adjustments on. Um, but just sticking to a routine. You know, as a youngster, your head's all over the place. But once you become a pro, you really start to lock in on the specifics of what you need to fix. Hey, how do you balance – between working counts and being ready for maybe that first pitch that might be the best pitch you get of the entire bat so you can't miss it? How do you balance those two things? Oh, man, that's a great question, Coach B, because I never swung at the first pitch. <laughs> and I think everybody who I, – everybody I, who <laughs> – you said you did. Well, I had to retrain – um my high school coach, we had about five pages of takes. So we just wore teams down – well, in college, you don't have that luxury sometimes. So I actually got better at if it was first pitch right down the middle, I was ready to just hit a line drive right back through the box for a base hit. I wasn't trying to do a lot except for mm. if it was a, you know, a center cut, first pitch fastball. So I would lead some games off with line drives right back up the middle, but that was the only time I swung 
for that first at bat, first pitch. If it was going to be a guaranteed line drive back through the box, I would swing. Other than that, I was taken because I, you know, played oh, for my man. dad. But that was the conversation. Like you maybe can't take that first pitch right down the middle because against the better pitchers, you may not see that. You may not see that the next four or five at bats. So you better be ready for that first one right down the the shoot. <laughs> You know, and there's so many people that, that believe and share that same thing. And, you know, that's a tough one for me. You know, when, when kids don't take the first pitch, I have some guys that are first pitch swingers. Um, and I have some guys that will not. And it's like, man, I can't yell at him if you don't take the first <laughs> pitch, you know, because I didn't. Exactly. Well, and and that's the individual piece too, because again, the the other point of that is it's not great if you swing at a bad pitch first pitch and get yourself out. There's nothing worse than that. So it's the feast or famine. Like there's nothing better than a first pitch line drive base hit to start the game off, but there's nothing worse than a first pitch lazy pop up to start the game as well. So like that that's both ends of the spectrum for that. You're so true, man. Uh, that's the reason why I didn't swing first pitch. I feel <laughs> like if I swung first pitch and I missed it, then I didn't give myself a chance to hit and that at bat. Yeah. And then I also didn't swing 3-0 because, again, I feel like I want to make sure that I work the count to my favor. I'm going to get what I want, and I don't want to lose focus, get too big, or whatever. So I was a little weird with that, you know, and, and we went over my hitting chart in triple A one time. And I think I was hitting like 225 <laughs> when I had 2010 counts, but I was hitting 750 on 0212, yep. which is absolutely insane. Yep. And that, you know, I would not want to hit with no strikes, but my focus was just so much better with one and two strikes. So Mine was too. It's um, just crazy. I just locked in. Um, had so many O2 at bats that ended up with either a walk or a base hit um just because mm-hmm. I don't know I felt comfortable um and and it did you tuned in um you know it's amazing to watch guys that are able to do that where it's a, it's it's a, a focus but it's a relaxed focus it's not a trying too hard yeah. focus uh, it's a relaxed in the zone focus that um I think that's what great hitters can are able to do is get themselves in the zone when they need to with one strike and two strike. You know, and the, and the flip side of that is frustrating is when you are 0-2 and you lay off of three nasty back foot sliders and you get to a full count and you swing on a high fastball. <laughs> I mean, that's just the thing that drives me absolutely nuts about myself. Like, you know, it's really facing lefties. Like, I'll, I'll get down because sometimes, you know, I have a certain approach that I had against lefties. Um, I tried to get lefties to show me their breaking ball first, you know, and some people did, some people didn't, you know, but, you know, you lay off of it, you lay off of it, you work to a full count, and then all of a sudden you're you're in this battle where you're fouling off tough pitches and stuff, and then you just swing at a high fastball and miss it, and that's just like, oh, you just wasted an entire bat right there, just your, your grind to get into back into the count, and you just threw it out the window. Uh, so that was probably my most frustrating at bats uh, were the ones where you you laid off the tough pitches and then just swung at something that just didn't make any sense. Hey, what other what other things helped you left on left? Because we would talk about lanes. Uh, Dusty Napoleon played for me at Iowa, who's the hitting coach at Northwestern, and one of the things that helped him a lot mm. was shifting his eye level out 
in the hitting zone a little bit to get a little bit better lane for that left-on-left -left angle? Mm -hmm. What were some other things that you feel like helped you left-on-left? Oh, man. Um, I tried to hit everything from a lefty out to center field. Like, I literally tried to hit home runs to center field. So that way, I moved a little bit earlier uh, because, you know, the biggest thing about we face lefties is so this mental thing, we don't want to get beat inside by them. I don't know why. Most lefties won't challenge you in there. But I moved early, and then I tried to be really aggressive to center field. So that would allow me to stay close and, and stay on everything. And, man, when that approach worked, it was so comfortable. Like, lefties really didn't bother me at all. Um, their sliders away, laid off of them. The ones that they hung was able to hit out. Uh, so the biggest thing was just getting ready early and then trying to drive balls out the center field. Man, at times at the college level, we were almost better leaving our left-handed hitters in against better college lefties because their changeup was their second best pitch and they weren't comfortable with throwing it to lefties. Yeah. And, and righties no. would have a hard time staying on the ball with lefties sometimes. Uh, I got into a good approach conversation with one of my former players uh, two days ago. You know, you don't see guys move around as much. That was one of the things. I hit like 450 in my college career off lefties because I sat in the front mm. corner of the box. So, I, I again, I wasn't a power guy, and I wasn't trying to do much except for hit line drives up the middle and the other way. But I took away the lefties' strengths and made it my own strengths because now that outer third pitch was a pitch down the middle. And, and, yeah, if you had a lefty that could come inside on you, Nate Robertson gave me fits, but, you know, he pitched in a long time in the big leagues. So, so tip your cap to talk about the back foot slider. That, that, that Nate Robertson yeah. back foot slider was not fun to, to hit off of, but he was really the only yeah. college lefty I ever faced that I felt overmatched by doing that. But you just don't see it as much. But I just felt like I was taking away their strengths and also their eye level. You know, as you get closer to the plate, those guys that really pound away – as you get closer to the plate, their eye level changes, so it messes a little bit with their strike zone and what they're used to doing to guys, too. And I, I just felt like it took the pitcher out of his game plan of what he was trying to attack me with. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, you mentioned that there was a lefty who pitched in the big leagues a long time and named Sean Burnett, and he was the mat here. And Sean had a nasty changeup. I mean, his, his changeup, even in the bigs, he threw a changeup really well at times, but that was a pitch that I sat on for him for some reason. Every time he threw it, I would go double in the left center gap because it was just really just, like you said, relaxing, taking that thing from him. And it's awesome when you have that comfort where you can eliminate certain things because you're able to sit on them and wait. So that's, that's good stuff, Coach B. Hey, what's some of the best advice you got either as a player or as a coach? Ooh, wow. Smiles are free. Love it. <laughs> I'll say that. Smiles, smiles, smiles are free. I think we're so intense. We're so, we put so much pressure on ourselves. We want to be so perfect. We want to be great at this thing that we forget to have fun. And, you know, um, two of my closest friends, awesome guys, they had so much fun with the game of baseball and they were really successful. And that's something I was always envious of them. And they would tell me all the time, you got to have fun with this game uh, because it's already hard enough. And, and when you can have fun, you realize you make some of your best plays in baseball when you're playing along somebody who you're talking to all the time, 
uh, who you guys are in the outfield. You're you're being crazy, you're being silly, but you're locked in because you just out there having fun. So that was the number one thing: is smiles are free and have fun with this game. And then the other thing. Hey, by know, the way, you probably need to give yourself more credit because Chris Dickerson talked about you during the virtual, and so it sounds like you are a great teammate. So you need to give yourself more credit. I love it. Oh man, I appreciate that, man. I, I love Dicky. You know, Dicky's so talented. He's another guy. We were in the outfield talking, and Dicky was a guy. He used to sing Rihanna. I don't know why. He was just an upbeat guy. He used to sing Rihanna songs, and I'm like, man, you crazy, but. It would really just it, – it, it develops a bond. It develops a brotherhood. And you really then can – it shows that you have that trust to where if you do have moments when you're feeling a little bit down, you guys going to pick you up. Uh, so, you know, that, that fun part of, of this thing is, is very serious. And it's really – that's kind of been my motto as a coach now because I've been a guy who's been serious about baseball his whole entire life that I can actually sit back and – advise another young guy just to have a little bit more fun uh, with baseball and they'll surprise themselves on how well you play when you relax well you gotta have those breaks you know it can't be it can't be bang your head against the wall one it becomes you know no fun and you know you've got to be able to find that balance of I can take a breather here and relax and joke around and then okay now you know they talk about the funnel where okay I can relax a little bit now it's time to, to lock in I can relax a little bit and and lock back in, but that's that's different for each guy too. That's the art of trying to find what works for you individually. Hey, on the flip side of that, what's the worst advice you got as a player or coach? Oh my goodness! <laughs> you know, I, I didn't use the word. Um, let's see, how can I say? It? I didn't use the word load for a very long time after I got to the big leagues um, because. That was a word that was used with myself and, and saying that I wasn't loading and I won't call this gentleman out because he's, he's a professional coach as well and I love him for it. But when I had just came up from AAA, I hit 23 home runs in AAA and they told me I wasn't loading. And I was thinking to myself, like, there's no way I'm not loading and <laughs> I'm hitting home runs. Exactly. <laughs> like that, that to me – it, that to me just did not make sense, you know, and, and maybe it was just our communication was a little bit different. We may have needed more time together. Hey, hey, I what were they seeing? I mean, for them to say, hey, you're not loading, what were they looking at your swing to, to say that he he's not loading when you probably were? Maybe it's a terminology difference. And what what were they seeing right. that that to say, hey, you're not loading? I think because I didn't have huge separation. Okay. You know, I kind of. So it's more separation issue than load issue. Yeah. I've kind of preset my hands into the position where I wanted them to and then got to my center. Right. So. So you were a walk away from your hands guy then. I was at that point. I was a walk away. And I think some guys you can kind of see a greater separation. You see a little bit more active separation and I just wasn't I was really kind of quiet and simple but I mean that's what all the hours in the the weight room are for right exactly so that you can trust the strength that you're working on so I, I started trying to do this big move coach B and I was getting sawed oh, bad. I'm talking about I was getting tore apart and I was becoming frustrated because I'm like I know I didn't forget how to hit and I think once I felt like I got to the big leagues the key to hitting was going to be unlocked. 
But the key was, Eric, be yourself, (laughs) you know, and just be a better version of you. And that's the thing, you know, sometimes I think we expect people to give us the magic juice on becoming a great player. But becoming a great player is putting in the work before you get to the field, putting in the work when you're at the field, and trusting your work during the game. And when you do that, you'll become great. You know, and you're a guy that if you have that kind of a work ethic to where you're you're on all the time and you have that that hunger inside of you, that's all you need, man. And I just think that some people need to believe in themselves a little bit more and not wait for somebody else to unlock something that they should have in them. Well, that was, was a tough one for me. You, you know, know, looking at the different styles, you know, we back up to, to styles again. I always felt like hand what the hands were doing were in relation to what the lower half was doing. So if a guy had a longer stride, and usually a toe tap or a leg lift's going to be a little bit longer stride out, they didn't have to do as much with their hands. Where you have a no stride guy who who really doesn't have anything going with his stride, they would have a lot more hand movement because you're trying to generate some rhythm and some power with your swing. I just felt like that was the difference of, of whether a guy moved his hands a lot was what his lower half was doing. And I don't know if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I see a lot of that as well. Um, whenever there seems to be too much of anything, it feels like there's going to be trials and tribulations with guys. Yep. Um, if a guy gets, he gets back way too much. Now he's created an uphill version that he has to try to get over, and that's going to be tough for him. Then if you have a guy whose hands, you know, there's too much separation right there. Now they're arm barring before they even get started and stuff. So definitely too much of anything is is going to put you in a tough position and really just working to find balance of both to where you're achieving all of your moves but you're also doing something that you can repeat over and over again. And that's the thing. Like I knew I was in a good routine when it seemed like what I was doing was boring because it was every day, every day, every day, the same exact thing. And I tell guys, man, do something to when it gets boring, when it gets boring, that means you're doing it right. Because now you're starting to tell yourself, do this every single day. Hey, what are some things you've learned as a coach that you wish you knew as a player? Oh Lord. So, so man, if I knew who, if I knew then what I know now, man, <laughs> gosh, we, we might be having a, we might be having a different conversation. Um, you know, as a coach, I would say, don't be quick to change. You know, you have to, you have to give yourself time for something to work. And, you know, I was the kind of guy that it, it might have worked for two weeks. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I figured it out. Then I have that bad game. And I'm like, back to the drawing boards. Instead of just kind of sticking with it, man, and, and letting it kind of manifest and, and grow inside of you. So, you know, the biggest advice I would say, like I say to my guys, is be patient with your adjustments. Because it's not going to happen overnight and stay. You're going to have to keep reinforcing and reinforcing and then it will start to become second nature to you, but you just got to stick with it. Love it. Hey, you're doing some consulting with college teams. What, what what does that entail for you? I mean, what are you trying to get across with the college guys? Man, I am, you know, I have to kind of get that, create that bridge between player and coach. Um, you know, having conversations with college coaches about, you know, what kind of player they're looking for, what are their needs, um, 
you know, kind of trying to find the right fit, you know, for guys, you know, certain guys might be, you know, guys tell me, give me your list of schools. And then all of a sudden I see LSU, Auburn, um, USC, Tulane. And I'm like, you live in Northern Virginia, man. Like if, if these schools don't know about you right now, <laughs> who you are, then we need to adjust our list a little bit. And those are hard conversations because my dream school was Georgia Tech. And if anybody told me I wasn't going to Georgia Tech, I wasn't listening to you because that's where I wanted to go. So, you know, it's really tough. And, and when you're navigating through those conversations and just getting guys to trust you and just say, hey, man, let's work on seeing the right fit. So we talk a lot about the things that are important to you, whether it be location, um, getting on the field early, course of study, size of school. And when we start answering those questions, then the fit starts to make a little bit more sense. You know, you might think that you're ready for a big school, but your options right here say you want to be on the field as a freshman. That might not be the case in a lot of big schools. So, the consulting well, and you're a good example of that. You're a good example of a guy that worked out great to to go to to maybe not a, a power five school. I was the same way. And and the other conversation you have with those guys, it's not like Northern Virginia doesn't get recruited. I mean, th there's Northern Virginia right. players that have committed to those schools along the way. So if you're not getting contact from those schools right now, they've probably seen you and and then don't feel like you're a fit for their program. And there's nothing wrong with that as well. That is so true. And, and that's the thing that guys have to be okay with and understand, like, hey, UVA is not the end-all, be-all. I mean, it, it takes a special player to get there. And, and who knows? I'm not saying don't still go to their showcase camps. But if you're still going to their showcase camps as a junior and they haven't said anything to you, then we got to turn the page. For sure. And look at something. I've seen, kids, I've seen kids miss out on great opportunities because they were chasing the golden nugget. Yeah. And that's that's something like, hey, you know, I, we're going to keep talking to this school, but I need you to start looking at school A, B, and C as well um, because they want you. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're telling you, like, man, we want that kid. And, you know, going somewhere where you're wanted, I think it's something that kids need to really start locking in on. I because agree. Because when you're wanted somewhere, you're wanted somewhere, then all of your things on your list, they're going to get met. You're going to be on the field. You're going to be an influential part of the program. And that's what you want. That's why we play this game every day is so that we're somewhere where we want to be wanted. If, if every kid out there right now and parent that's listening and, and, and look at the transfer portal in every sport, this isn't just a baseball issue. This is kids leaving the schools that they went to to start. They didn't think about the social fit. They didn't think about the academic fit. They didn't think about whether a coach actually wanted them to play in that program, so they're not invested in you at all. So if they cut you loose, it doesn't matter, or if you want to leave, it doesn't matter. If people started to do a better job of lining all of those things up, you would have a, a kid here and there or a girl here and there leave the school that they're at, but the numbers would get cut way down. But people aren't doing a good job on the front end of figuring all of those things out. They get excited. They get in the moment. I know we're in the – just look at social media, look at Instagram and Twitter. We are in the FOMO era, so that's how recruiting is. It's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. So people make gut decisions – because of the heat of the moment, rather than writing everything down and laying it all out, if you really check all those boxes off, and 
you know, want to work a little bit to get on the field, chances of you leaving the place that you go to is probably not very high. You're so correct. You're so correct. We have um, a bunch of guys in last year's class that started somewhere. Now they're in the transfer portal and, you know, we're working hard for them to find a home. But, you know, it's uh, it's kind of it's kind of heartbreaking, man, to watch a kid go through that because you hurt for them. Um, but every situation is different. Yes. You know, some of these guys had issues with the coach. Um, some of the guys got into a situation where the surrounding wasn't what they thought it was going to be. So it's just everybody has different reasons and things. Um, you know, you just hope that you work hard for them and, you know, you find them a fit that they then turn, kind of turn things around and just get back to why they wanted to go to school, and that's to play ball and better themselves. Hey, do you have a fail-forward moment? Do you have something along the way that, that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but looking back now, one of the better things that happened to you? I do. Um, my time with the Yankees, man, I really felt like um, I didn't I didn't put out the best version of, of me. Um, you know, for whatever reason, I was frustrated on the decisions that were made. You know, got picked up off waivers, and they sent me – you know, back to a level that had already done really well. And, and I just didn't grind and just play ball like I was capable of. I was too busy being angry. Um, so that's something that I use when I talk to my, my kids in, in today. Like, no matter where you are, if you have an opportunity to play, man, it's your obligation and you owe it to yourself to just go out there and be the best version of you. So that, that sucks because the Yankees saw something in me that I didn't show them, but I was more than capable of showing them that. It was just getting through my own frustration. Yeah, that's tough. I think we all went through that as as players and as coaches along the way that you, you sometimes you focus so much on things that are out of your control, you know, that you, you ruin your path or your journey at times and, and make yourself miserable focusing on things that, that you really can't control. And um, that's easier said than done. I think we all get better at that as we get older and, and mature. But I think for me, that's one of those things that I wish I could go back and and redo is really center in on things that matter and focus on those things and the rest of it, don't even worry about it. So true. So true. Every chance I get, man, I tell that story just because I don't want to see it happen to somebody else. Yeah. Hey, you have a lot going on. I mean, you're working multiple places. You got a big family. What are some routines that help you stay on track? Oh, man. Well, I'm, I'm still working on that as we speak, Coach B, because it seems like the schedule's always changing. Um, but the biggest thing is, you know, trying to set aside at least an hour for myself to kind of woosah and bring things back to uh, the reality of everything because it kind of gets overwhelming. Um, but mainly just having periods of the day obligated and delegated to certain things. Like the mornings are delegated to my kids, getting them to school and getting a little bit of work done for the showcase team. You know, the afternoons I'm in the high school coaching and then the late afternoon evenings, that's when I get into you know, the instruction part of it. So if I can kind of break that down and then have those days when you get home, you just got to put stuff away and focus on your family. And, you know, because that's the the number one thing, honestly, because if you don't have them, then all of the other stuff becomes null and void. So 
still working, still adjusting through a lot of things, and it's a grind every day for myself. Hey, you have any final thoughts, or did we miss anything along the way here? You got some final thoughts? No, I'm just grateful to be a part of the podcast, and um, we'll love. I can't wait until hopefully this app is done, and we can we can get on and talk about it. Um, I'll fill you in as it continues to grow, uh, but I just love teaching you know, the game to anybody who's willing to learn. Well, hey, if you can figure the timing piece out and, and allowing hitters to be on time every time they step in the box, every pitch, like you, that's a gold mine for me. That's a gold, that's a gold mine. If you can oh, get hitters on God, time for really. every pitch, uh, we got something working there. So it's phenomenal. Awesome, man. Hey, Coach B, I love you, man. Thank yeah, you so much. Love you too, Eric. Thank, yeah, thanks for coming on. This was phenomenal. We'll get you back on. And, and a reminder, this will be out in May, um, but May 24th, uh, virtual convention videos released. So jump in there. Eric's talk was awesome. Uh, I really value our friendship. Uh, this is the great thing about baseball. I didn't know you three years ago, and now I feel like we're lifelong friends. Amen to that, man. Baseball is the greatest sport for that reason right there. One of my favorite things about spring training, man, is just getting back together with the guys. So, so true. All right. Well, best of luck with the season, Eric. Thank you, Coach. Thanks so much to Coach Crozier for jumping on with me. He's such a unique perspective having played at the highest level and now coaching high school and travel ball. I hope that this episode helps anyone get a better understanding on hitting and that you can develop players and also win games. Quick reminder that our virtual convention videos released to all members on May 24th. If you haven't renewed yet or are interested in becoming a member, now's a great time to get signed up, and you can do that at abca.org, on the My ABCA app, or give the ABCA office a call if you need help. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter, CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at RyanBrownlee17 or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks and leave it better for those behind you.